1975, Christmas Eve. Tommy Ziegler is just kind of your average guy. It pretty much untangles the lives of half of this small town in Florida. Four people ended up dead in a furniture store with the lights off at different times during the evening. Tommy Ziegler is rushed off to the hospital, went in for emergency surgery, and later is booked for murder. Your heart kind of swings, you know, from one end to the other. You know, he did it, he didn't do it. It's been like going to a time portal every time. I go back into the original documents or speak to someone who was there. Well, my mindset when we started the trial is we think we have a decent chance of winning this trial. We thought and still believe we have an innocent client. There's no one man can shoot eight guns in four seconds to expend in 30 shells or whatever. I don't care who he is. Once, as an investigator, you prove to yourself that this man is literally being crucified by the state, it ruins your own life. I mean, I've served in the service. I've served in Vietnam. I've represented a lot of people, done a lot of things. It has been, that was probably the worst moment of my life, is standing beside Tommy Ziegler, believing in my heart that he was innocent, and have the judge sentence him to die. I don't want to be let go. I want that new trial. I want those 12 members of that jury to stand up and say not guilty. Ten students sit around a table, mapping out every detail of the life of a man who has lived behind bars for 40 years. For three hours each week, they come together to discuss their findings and share insights about the case. You sort of start and you read all these transcripts and you kind of make little notes like, oh my god, like what's that about? And then you come to class and you say like, oh, I, I, did you see this page? This doesn't make any sense. And then you realize actually it does make perfect sense. You know, like it's one of those things where you, you, you're trying to figure, you're trying to sort the forest from the trees, uh, or the trees from the forest, whatever the phrase is. Um, and um, so there's no real strategy to that except just reading everything and talking to everyone who you could possibly talk to and just sort of digesting all this information that you could possibly get. That's Alex Campbell, former student of the Medill Justice Project, talking about the case his class examined in 2011. He now works as an investigative reporter at BuzzFeed News. So, so we had this, frankly, insane deadline for a, an investigative piece because we all were graduating. So it's like, it's not the kind of thing you can just move back. And so um, I, I'm sure there were plenty of leads that we weren't able to exhaust. But it was one of those things where you just have to make a, a choice and it's like, okay, these are the things that really matter. We're gonna we're gonna exhaust these as best we can. But also even without that kind of a, a crazy deadline, that that happens in every story. Every story it's like you get more time so you, you, you exhaust more leads. But on any given investigative story you could spend like ten years, you know what I mean? And uh, still not feel like you're truly at the absolute bottom. Current students ask Alex, who is visiting the class from New York, questions about his investigation, which happened to take place in the exact same classroom where this year's students sit, in the basement of an old building on Northwestern University's campus. 
Um, so you work on the investigative team for the BuzzFeed now. Mm -hmm. I guess I was just wondering how true is this experience on um, the Justice Project like to your day-to-day -day work now? Uh, incredibly so. I mean, a lot of the stuff I write about has to do with criminal justice. So it's like finding trial transcripts and talking to court clerks and figuring out if everything in the court file is what's supposed to be there and reading that and making a list of witnesses and, you know, uh, thinking like, well, you know, is there another way? I mean, I, I felt like I had a base of knowledge about how to look at court cases and how to, how to investigate something related to a crime uh, that... You know, I, I just figured things out quicker, figured out what the new obstacle was quicker, you know, and, and was just able to that much more quickly understand uh, this or that. Working with the Medill Justice Project primes you to think critically about everything, to intensely consider the implications of every word, to deconstruct everything you think you know. We should definitely be, you know, flexible in our thinking and be willing to shift gears if something comes up. Um, and um, so you're absolutely right about that. I was, I was really impressed, actually, with your initial evaluation of the information. I thought you guys did a good job of digging into the case, asking a lot of good questions, noticing a lot of different things. Uh, and uh, to Hannah's point, you know, we're still at the very beginning, so there's a lot of information, if only because the case is so old, so it's gone through so many iterations and so many appeals, there's so much out there. But the crime itself was so complicated because it involved so many victims and so many weapons and so many facets that uh, I'd say in some ways it's, it's, it's uh, more complicated than your average um, crime. So how do we do it? At first, all 10 students read through everything they can find about the case. Police records, medical records, forensic reports, and court records like depositions, trial transcripts, appellate records, post-conviction petitions, the list goes on. And students write memos about their reporting throughout the week and send them to everyone in the class. Then, after the threads of the case become clearer, students start to delve into specific aspects of the case. Morgan and Sen focus on Edward Williams, one of the prosecution's key witnesses. Edward Williams was a handyman slash friend of the Zeigler family for 20 years before these murders occurred. And he comes to the police with this story about Zeigler bringing him to the furniture store that night, you know, Christmas Eve, 1975, and threatening to kill him. But he doesn't show up at the police for, you know, three hours after it supposedly happened. So the prosecution based most of the case on what William said, but there are still a lot of questions as to what really happened and what stakes he might have had in potentially not telling the truth. Jackie and Fariba look into Felton Thomas, the other key witness whose testimony of what happened that night changes as time goes on. I know for me at least, going so deep into Felton Thomas' story, there were so many people that he said he told about these things that he did, like at least four or five different people he told that this weird thing just happened. Um, and I found it odd that we had no record of them ever asking those people like what he told them, if he told them anything, um, which could back up or not back up his story and everything that he had to say. Then there's Kayla and Will 
who study the ballistics of the case, creating 3D diagrams of the store, learning all there is to know about the various types of guns gathered as evidence. 23 inches out of the 30 scale, but then how many feet away are we thinking? Still 12? Or still, what are you thinking? This is the hall where the alleged confrontation between Tommy, um, Edward Williams and Tommy was, right? Mm -hmm. And that's where the detectives were kind of replaying the scene. Yes. That's where everything came in to be. Right. So we're going to want to make sure this is kind of like an accurately mapped space. Absolutely. Because there's a lot of contention over that uh, supposed yeah, altercation. Yeah, so we know this is 82 feet. And... Do we have any pictures of that one? Raphael and Miranda compose a timeline based on deposition and trial transcripts, including witness testimonies from the original case and appeals throughout the years. Timeline, I think, has maybe 300 or 350 different entries of people saying that things happened in a certain order, and I think it's still going to grow as we come across more documents and more um, sources who tell us a little bit more about what happened um, in 1975. And Hannah and Rosalie comb through and identify all of the evidence not entered into the court proceedings. I am focusing on evidence that wasn't brought to the trial. Um, basically, in 1987, the Public Records Act in Florida led to this discovery by the defense attorneys of all this evidence that wasn't brought to trial that could have potentially exonerated or proven Tommy Zeigler not to be guilty. Um, and so there's a lot of different characters and pieces of information that are important to this. Um, there's a few people's testimonies who their timeline directly contradicts that of the prosecution's theory. And if we can somehow put together the different pieces of the timeline and figure out what intuitively could make more sense or not, then I think we have a strong case in terms of finding out the truth of the situation. The truth. One of the most challenging lessons you learn as a student in this class is that your personal feelings about innocence or guilt are irrelevant. In a case riddled with questions, inconsistencies, and countless conspiracy theories, it's hard to ignore the impulse to want to know who really did commit the crime, to solve the mystery. But that's not our job. I know that this came up in some of the memos, but you know, I want you all to just be very aware that you know we are we are not advocates. You know, we're not taking sides in this matter. Uh, we're not trying to prove a thesis. We're trying to just figure out what happened. And I realize it's a normal, uh, perhaps a normal instinct to kind of have an opinion about the case. Um, but as much as humanly possible, you want to suspend your opinions because it doesn't really matter what we think. It, you know, it doesn't matter what we suspect, think, feel. The only thing that matters is what we can establish through facts. And um, anything short of that will, will not be good enough. So it, it's going to take a bit of, of getting conditioned to that, you know, sort of process. But, but that's, that's the way we approach this. And it's also important, um, unlike uh, lawyers, because we're not lawyers, but as journalists, we, we are not interested in legal technicalities. And we already know that in this case that there are a number of questions about the legal process that have been raised before the judge's um, apparent bias, um, the withholding of evidence, the destroying of, of information, uh, any number of, of different issues, right? We, we're aware of that. Uh, but even that will still not get us to the truth, right? We're not in the business of reasonable doubt. We're in the business of trying to figure out w what happened. Um, so 
you know, again, just do the, the best you can to focus on what information we have and what we can prove. And I'm not sure where we're going to end up. I don't know what we're going to find, if anything, maybe we find nothing. But allow yourself to keep your mind open as much as possible to any outcome. And don't, don't worry about whether you think uh, Tommy Ziegler is innocent or guilty. Just worry about what's in front of us, if that makes sense. Does anybody have actually any questions about that? They don't just yet, but over the course of the quarter, students will have to remind themselves of this over and over again. As they look further into the case, when they go to Winter Garden, when they meet Tommy Ziegler himself. The trips are um, a big part of the experience investigating these cases. It's an, an opportunity for students to effectively parachute into foreign terrain and to quickly assess what's around you, to figure out logistically how to get from point A to point B to point C, to maximize the time that you have while you're in the field, to conduct yourself professionally, to know how to speak to skittish sources or to knock on doors uh, or to track people down. All the things that we do as investigative reporters, we practice that in the field. And um, for many students, if not all, for most of them, certainly, it's the first time they've ever traveled far from home to do reporting out of state on a, a case of great gravity where, you know, someone has been convicted of murder, where, where people have uh, died. Uh, it's, a, it's a serious it's a serious matter, and um, but the, the experience in the field, I think, is useful for students who are going to become journalists because when you leave school, you will be going out into the field. You will be knocking on doors, interviewing people, uh, doing all sorts of things, and it's complicated, uh, and it's hard to do it well. So we, we spend a lot of time on the logistics to prepare for these trips, to go over the strategy and the questions and the approach. Uh, backup plans. There's a lot that goes into it, but to me, it's hopefully a, a useful experience for students. And so the term progresses. The investigation continues, and students prepare for their first trip to Florida. So what's your schedule right now for the, the first trip? Okay, so on Friday night, we're arriving in Orlando around 6 p.m., and then we're driving an hour and 30 minutes about to meet a deal of Hollenbeck. For dinner? Yes. Okay. That'll be good. 